I know that some of you have already looked at your watch and thought this is impossible. Trust God. <laughs> Trust God. I don't know, I'm going to have to talk to Dave Hintz about encouraging Dan the way he did. This is humbling to think of what God has done and through whom he has done it. And it should be humbling to think about why he does it. It's for his glory. Before I talk on Romans 11, and, and this will be somewhat of a, a different uh, message for us. I'm not going to do just a straight dive into the text and exposition of the text. Um, I'm saving up for next week. We start the book of 2 Thessalonians and I'm prepared to unload on you then. Um, I want us to meditate on what this looks like for us at this stage of our history. There's another passage of scripture that has gripped my heart in sober reflection since the first time I ever studied it and preached it almost 30 years ago. It's a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You don't need to turn there. I just want to, I want you to listen to it for a moment. In that passage, the apostle Paul says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man, that is each one building on the foundation, each church leader, each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man, that is no, no leader in a church, can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's, that is each leader's work, will become evident for the day, that is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. And if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. And if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved. Yet so as through fire. And do you not know that you, all of you, you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Again, this passage is really about leaders like Paul and Apollos, who the church in Corinth loved and sometimes hated. It's about how these leaders contribute to the building of the church, that is, the new covenant temple of God. Our contribution has to be that which will be valued in the age to come, not just valuable in the present age. That's why this passage is so sobering to me. What kind of church, what kind of ministry is going to actually last in the age to come? Think through this with me. The only thing that can last in the presence of God for all eternity is what glorifies him alone. He will not allow anything in the age to come that does not centralize his glory to last. 
And what we do now is building something that will last forever. So what must be the central focus and emphasis in everything that we do as a church if we don't want the ministry of Summit Woods Baptist Church to be nothing more than a blip on a temporary timeline, but something that lasts forever and ever into the age to come. That means no leader can be the central piece of any church, past, present, or future. No group of elders, no single member, no group of members. God wants his glory to be central here. He wants his glory to be central here. What we emphasize now, what we build our church around now must be aimed at the very glory of God. That's a sobering reality. That's why I want to talk on this text. That's one reason. The other reason is over 12 years ago when I stood in this pulpit for the very first time to preach to this congregation, the passage most on my mind was the one that Terry just read for you. It has to be the theme of our work together. Some of you might have been here on that Friday evening. Uh, you thought that I had worked out some deal with God. It was a Friday night and there was an electrical storm, an electrical storm going on and the lightning behind the, as I thundered about the glory of God. It's as if God and I had worked out this special thing together. It's a great way to do it on, when you're coming in view of a call. The Lord really worked great. But it was the first anthem of my own ministry here is that we must serve together for the glory of God. Listen, the Bible begins, in my estimation, the Bible begins with the display of God's glory and it ends with the display of the eternal enjoyment of God's glory. And every other theme in scripture is sandwiched in between what is ultimate, which is the glory of God. Some want to say that the kingdom of God is the emphasis of the Bible, and I do believe it is an emphasis in the Bible. Some want to say that the gospel is the key that unlocks and displays the glory of God. I wouldn't have any problem with that, but the gospel is what leads us to value the glory of God. The glory of God is ultimate. So this passage that the Apostle Paul penned this is central to God so that God would be central among us. This should, mean, this should mean everything to us. When I began preaching on this passage over 12 years ago, I noted that Summit Woods has a passion for the gospel being aggressively presented to the lost. Summit Woods has a passion for the gospel to be sung and applied to children and adults. It, Summit Woods has a driving passion for everything that the congregation does to be full of the gospel. Now contextually, as we look at this passage, I think this passage about the glory of God is directly tied to the gospel. Meaning this, think with me on this. The gospel is the key that actually unlocks our prizing the glory of God as the ultimate priority. Romans, the whole book of Romans, is a book that exalts the multifaceted diamond of the gospel of God in some of the most exquisite ways among all the other New Testament epistles. 
You could say that Romans 1.16 is the thesis of the book, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone so that everyone might see and actually savor and enjoy the glory of God in the gospel. The book of Romans was written to Christians, that is saints, he says that in the opening verse, who comprised many different churches in the city of Rome. Chapter 16 actually lists many different believers within several congregations in that city. And these Christians and these churches had very significant challenges among them. You see some of those challenges in Romans chapter 14 and 15 over issues that we commonly call opinions, gray areas perhaps. But Paul takes those challenges and he describes them and shows us that their divisions when they were divided as a church their divisions existed along the Jew and Gentile divide perhaps what role should the Old Testament law play in how New Testament Christians live but these divisions developed into people living hypocritical lives with each other in the church They were arrogant toward one another, prizing one interpretation of the Old Testament law against another interpretation of the new covenant. They were full of disunity. And yet, they're all saints within the same body of Christ, within legitimate churches. How can that be? Have you ever, could you even imagine such a thing happening that people in a church would live hypocritically, be arrogant toward each other and disunited? Sure, we all see it. Whether or not you've been at Summit Woods very long, whether or not you've just been a part of church life, you've seen that kind of thing. Why does it happen? It happens when you marginalize the gospel to the edges of your life and you don't centralize it. The, the churches in Rome, they had pushed the gospel to the extremities of their lives rather than applied it to the details of their behavior. They perhaps loved the gospel as an entry point to God, but not necessarily as the lifeblood of all of their behavior. And so the reason that Paul writes and the way he constructs this letter says that they need to centralize, not marginalize the gospel throughout the whole of their life and their interactions with one another. If you enter the kingdom because of grace alone and faith alone in Christ alone, you must live with each other in the same way. And you must see all of your behavior defined by that gospel. And only then will the church actually bring glory to God so we could say we prize the gospel and the message that saves and well we should we should prize it to the core of our being and how we speak to one another and interact with each other how we develop ministries together how sometimes we have to shut down some ministries together how we'll look to the future, how we look at the present, all must centralize the gospel message of Jesus Christ and what it means to be acceptable in him and live a sanctifying life in him because that leads to the glory of God. That's the only thing that's going to last into eternity. 
In fact, Romans 1 through 11 is a detailed definition of the gospel of God. Paul is a slave, an apostle set apart in chapter 1 verse 1 for the gospel of God. The intended crescendo of response to the the gospel is found in the passage we're looking at today. And that is to revel in the glory of God. In the latter half of the book, in chapters 12 through 16, Paul says of himself, he is one who is a ministering priest of the gospel of God, chapter 15, verse 16. Why? What is the intended crescendo of how he lives and serves and ministers? Romans 16, 25 says, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be what forever? Glory. It's bookends here. The intended crescendo of the gospel and how we live it out is the glory of God. The central element that leads you to live for the glory of God is the gospel message itself. That's why I believe that this passage, much like Ephesians 3 that Ryan covered, and much like what we'll see in Philippians 1 this afternoon that Dalton will speak from, this is central to our ministry together. Who we are and what we do, how we live together as God's people has one central aim. It has, from our foundation as a church, been true. It has been the central passion of my heart among you and I am confident that this church will end and will end its ministry in the age to come to the praise of the glory of God. So how are we going to keep the gospel central so that we glorify God forever as a church. That's what Romans eleven thirty three to 36 reveals to us. Let's just meditate briefly, though we could linger long in the specifics of it. We really could. Your mind might linger long and it actually might be a helpful conversation that you have during lunch is to think about how these these ways that would centralize the gospel to the glory of God works out. So let let me just talk through four different ways to value the gospel's present work among us to God's glory. Four ways to value the gospel's work among us to the glory of God. That's what I think the Apostle Paul is actually urging in this crescendo of his definition of the gospel. How are we going to do it? God will be glorified when you apply these four steps, these four ideas. First, we have to stand in awe of God's mind We have to stand in awe of God's mind. Look at the first part of verse 33. And actually feel the emotion of the statement. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Do you think the Apostle Paul was in awe of God's mind? After he has just finished one of the most 
incredible, exquisite displays and definitions of the gospel we find in the whole of the New Testament. He stands back and says, oh, as if it takes his breath away. How deep, how rich is the wisdom and knowledge of God. The word riches is a term almost exclusively associated with the gospel, especially in the book of Romans. Romans 2.4 talks about the kindness, the riches of his kindness that leads you to repentance. Romans 9.23 describes God making known the riches of his glory. In other books like Ephesians chapter 2 verse 7, in the ages to come he wants to show the surpassing riches of his grace. Ephesians 3 out, 3 8, he talks about the unfathomable riches of Christ. Riches are the wealth of what we find in God in the gospel. Wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge, it doesn't mean here, not wisdom or knowledge that we have about God, but wisdom and knowledge that God possesses within himself. Have you ever stopped to think about how much wisdom and how much knowledge exists in God so that he does all that he does in such perfection? Now this is more than just some kind of classroom discussion on the attributes of God. Wisdom, this is the only time we see it used in the book of Romans in 1 Corinthians. It's connected to the gospel many times, especially in the first chapter. Knowledge is found in Colossians 2.3, in whom are hidden all, listen to this, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ has all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is an expression from us in response to what God is like in our salvation. Oh, the depths, the depths, not, not depths that are hidden to the point where we can't find them, no, but what I do know, what I can see, I can't fathom all of it. What I know is astounding and it's marvelous and it's unimaginably deep beyond human grasp. The very little that I can see of my own salvation and the salvation of others and the work of the gospel is so profound. The depths and breadth and height and splendor of the wealth of God's wisdom and knowledge when it comes to saving sinners should leave us breathless. In how he accomplishes our salvation through the death of Christ in all the practical ways that he works it out. Do you know how often that response is challenged in our life? You ever thought about that? The times that you are getting frustrated with where you are in your life, the times you're getting frustrated with the circumstances around, do you, do you not know that this is coming from the wisdom and knowledge of God and the wealth of the riches of that wisdom and knowledge to bring you where he wants you for eternity? And notice how often our appreciation of that element, God's mind, is challenged in our experience. That intricate detail of the awe-inspiring wisdom and knowledge of God. Think about it. 
of who precisely needed to be involved in our life so that we would come to know Christ. Of when and where and how God would accomplish his eternal saving purposes in us. The depth of the riches, the profound wisdom and knowledge of God in establishing this church to accomplish things that will actually last for all eternity. And he uses less than ideal circumstances, doesn't he? Even sinful ones. When churches split to form new churches, there's sin involved in that, isn't there? There's disunity involved in that, isn't there? Can can God take our wrong-headed choices or the wrong-headed choices of others and work them together so that something profound and wise and good could last forever to his glory? What did he have to do in all of his wisdom to bring the initial leadership of a theological, ecclesiological heavyweight like Mark Devine and all of his jokes. I mean, they're good. Some of them. them. (laughs) And what was involved? What was involved in Ryan and Karen's life to bring them under the ministry of Mark Devine so that they they would be a person that he would recommend? What had to happen? What conversations took place? What had to be arranged so that that would happen so that Ryan would be serving where he was and brought to this moment when he would be the first and founding pastor of the church, perfectly positioned in his training and his place of service, his personal background, his marriage, his mustache, all of it. Orchestrating the combination of Christians from a variety of origins and personal experiences to form this church. For the very specific calculated conviction of Ryan to patiently teach and work toward the establishment of biblical eldership from day one until it was established. What was involved in the wisdom and mind of God in the countless people who came under the gospel preaching and influence of this church throughout the first 10 years of its existence? And what was going on as all that happened? In the life of a young family 1,400 miles away, shaping and building the Copernicus. In our marriage and in our family and our ministry experiences and convictions to be the next building block for the next phase of ministry as a church. Not to mention the eternally shaping ministry that God called Ryan to in Athens, Greece. And the vast details of ministry that shaped he and his family to where they are at this moment, impacting countless others for the gospel. Do you begin to look back at all of that and all of those details and say, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. I mean, it had to be the wisdom and knowledge of God that a Texan living in California, married to a valley girl, serving in the desert region of California would come to the Midwest and serve here and be used of God in the ways that we have been used as a tool in the Spirit's hand to bring about the gracious work of salvation in the lives of others. It's just a scratch, isn't it? 
It's a little scratch on the surface of God's astounding work just in this church over the last 25 years. It should astound us to consider the wisdom and knowledge of God at work right now in ways we cannot possibly conceive. And we have no idea what he's doing right now in every detail of every life of every person sitting here for what will catapult us into the next season of ministry. It's astounding. If you are not in awe of the mind of God, you'll never glorify him. But the gospel and everything it does leaves you stunned with God's wisdom, his mind. Think of a second way, another way that we could value the gospel's present work among us to the glory of God. We should also bow in reverence to God's ways. Bow in reverence to God's ways. This is the hard one. We will not stand in awe for very long before we find ourselves bowing in reverence at the unsearchable, unfathomable judgments of God. Do you see that in the next phrase in verse 33? How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. In other words, there's no higher vantage point from which to see his judgments and his ways. In his commentary on this book, MacArthur says these are, he says that God's footprints are untrackable. Has the idea of someone hunting an animal, trying to follow it to bring down the animal, but God's ways are untrackable. The psalmist said in Psalm 77, 19, your way was in the sea and your paths in the mighty waters. Your footprints may not be known. Ephesians 3, 8, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. In other words, no one, no one has a perspective by which we can see all that God sees and know all that God knows so as to evaluate him in what he does, in what he allows, and even in what he restrains. This speaks to the perfections of God's decisions, the perfections of his actions. The word judgments comes from a term that is, especially in the book of Romans, commonly associated with condemnation. Think through that. How unsearchable, how unfathomable are God's ways in bringing just condemnation. The term ways is normally associated with salvation. You know well the the passage in Isaiah 55 Verses 8 and 9, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways, what? You know it. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In the book of Revelation, chapter 15, verse 3, it says, they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, great and marvelous are your works, O Lord, the Almighty, Righteous and true are your ways, king of the nations. The decisions of God, the decisions that he makes as to the salvation and the judgment of mankind is beyond any human being's ability to see and know what God sees and knows. 
So how he acts and how he imparts his mercy can't be tracked completely. It can't be completely comprehended from our vastly limited perspective. There's a reason why you look at who is and who is not following the Lord and you, you wonder about it. And there are times when you say he shows mercy here and seems to restrain here. And you say, why? Because his judgments and his ways are beyond us. And if you don't see your life through the grid of the gospel, that fact will not be pleasing to you. When you see your life through the grid of the gospel, the fact that God in his condemnation and his salvation thrills the soul, you have to see it through the gospel. Verses 34 through 35 are actually a an Old Testament explanation as to how true verse 33 really is. The apostle quotes from Isaiah 40 and Job 41 when he says in verse 34, who has known the mind of the Lord, who has become his counselor, who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again. A counselor here refers to someone like we might think of as a professional, a paid staff member, someone like a a presidential cabinet secretary who gives the president expert advice. In fact, we often say of such leaders that a president or any such leader is really only as effective as as the counsel he receives. A king rarely rules better than the information he is given. But think about this. Who in the universe could possibly turn in a resume thinking that they could really help God out in dispensing good advice to him as to how he will dispense his saving grace? Who can do that? This is why it's so challenging for us as a church. Ryan experiences this on a daily basis. He certainly experienced here, that here for the 10 plus years that he and Karen served here. We have experienced it. Our elders experience this day in and day out. Think of all the life events that we go through. Marriage and divorce. Membership and discipline. Births and deaths. Agreements and disagreements. Full budgets. Not so full budgets. (laughs) Let's say that all the time, right? Hiring and firing, being present for significant issues and being absent, baptisms and apostasies, healing and sickness, people coming and people leaving. We see it all. The highs and the lows of church life are intensely personal and they're often difficult to understand what God is actually doing, who he is bringing in who he is moving on. Why is he allowing this person to die and that one to continue on? Why does that person see so much trial and this family seems to experience so little? Why does that person seem to glean so much wealth and another seems to never never get a break? Why is one person's health always good and another's is always struggling? Why do I struggle with discouragement and the other person seems to always be happy? Do those questions go through your mind? I I don't know why God said that it was time for someone like Kevin Hawker to go home to be with the Lord. 
when I've sat with parents and they've lost a little one, I don't know why God chose to do it that way. When I've prayed at the bedside of someone who is passing away, I I can't answer the questions that are inevitably on their mind. Why this time? Why this season? Why this way? I, I don't, it's beyond me. But at the end of the day, who am I to evaluate God? Who am I to evaluate? Who among us has the altitude from which we can peer down onto God's judgments and ways and realize that we're never peering down? We're always looking up from a very limited hole into the grand scheme of what God is doing. The reality is the more you come to understand salvation, the more you're likely going to be amazed that you're saved and not judged. The more mature you grow in your salvation, the more quickly you find yourself bowing in reverence to the exquisite uniqueness of God's ways. I I don't know why suffering happens as it does, but it does. But you know what that does to hypocrisy when you stand in awe of what God does? It just, it evaporates it. Arrogance is diffused by God's judgments. Disunity vanishes when we see the uniqueness of God's ways. And when we look at his ways and we bow in reverence, guess who gets all the glory? A third way to value the gospel's present work among us to the glory of God is found in verse 36. And it is this, we need to savor God's involvement. We need to savor in humility God's involvement. I mean, nobody has the altitude from which to look down on God and see what he is doing and pass judgment or give him advice. And why is that? Because, you see the very first word of verse 36, because from him and through him and to him are all things. He is the source of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. He is the aim of all things. He is involved in absolutely everything. Have you ever noticed how we often try to defend God's involvement in difficulty? I heard people after 9-11 say God wasn't involved. God had little to do with the nightmare that we all have walked through with covid God God really wasn't involved in the death of this individual. Listen, brothers and sisters, we know this, we've studied this, we've talked about it. We do God no favors by trying to rescue him from the hard issues of life. We actually belittle him when we do that. We reshape him, we exile him to the periphery of life and make him no more than a helpless old man who means well but doesn't have the necessary capacity to stop what we find displeasing in life. That's not God. That's someone who looks more like us who we try to control. Friends, he's involved in everything. From him, he is the source of all things as they work out his saving plans. Through him, he is the sustainer and the agent of all things as they accomplish his good purposes. To him, God is the goal of all things as they reach their intended point through salvation. Is that complex? Is that hard? How do we wrestle with the the difficulties? Yes, it's hard, but it is true. 
Otherwise, how will you rest in Romans 8, 28? That God causes all things to work together for good. If he's not in them all, if they are not all for him and through him, then can he really cause all things to work together for good? Despair and anxiety consume us when we live as if we are the center of all things rather than God. You want to know why you're in despair? Because we're not valuing the centrality of God in everything. Anger and bitterness boil over when we lift our expectations as central above God's ways. Lethargy and laziness deplete us when we find that our self-centeredness leads to emptiness and inability But listen, joy and steadiness fuel us when God is central. Satisfaction and pleasure fill us when God is the centerpiece and we value him. Zeal and dependent activity drive us when God is the centerpiece. All of our church life is essentially a battle with cultural demands and personal expectations that wrestle for supremacy and how we function and what we emphasize as a congregation. So if we gather for an audience of one, that is God, then our conversation, our introduction of the service, our singing, our prayers, our preaching, our responses will look and sound radically different than if the audience of one is the cultural consumer. Visitors come and go. Members come and go. Elders come and go. Preachers come and go. Circumstances rise and fall. Fads in ministry come and go. Preferences come and they go. God must remain central in everything. We need to stand in awe of the wealth of God's mind, bow in humility to the uniqueness of his ways, We need to savor the centrality of God's involvement. Finally, if that's true of you, then you'll do this last one. Proclaim with conviction God's glory. Proclaim with conviction God's glory. When the Apostle Paul drinks deeply of the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, when he considers how unsearchable the judgments and the saving ways of God are, when he knows that there's no one who can give counsel to God, when he sees the centrality of God, that from him and through him and to him are all things, there's only one final response. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Period. That's why we can't marginalize the gospel. Marginalize the gospel, you will not say, to God be the glory. Centralize the gospel and everything will be seen as to the glory of God. Everything in your life. Biblical counseling helps us to see the centrality of God in all things. Preaching helps to exalt the glory of God in all things. Singing helps us to express the glory of God in all things. Fellowship among the believers and discipleship is simply helping us to walk in the midst of the gospel to the glory of God in everything in life. And so if we don't do those things, God does not get the glory. But because this church from its inception has been doing those things, sometimes better than others, 
to be sure. I do believe we can say, to God be the glory. When we look at what he's doing now, my wife and I were talking about it just last night before we went to bed. Did we ever imagine that we would be able to serve in a church with such rich fellowship and, and see all that God has done? You know, almost 13 years ago, I'm not sure that we understood it like we see it now. And we both just looked at each other and said, this was the grace of God. This was, this was the grace of God. He has accomplished it all, all of it. And he will. So I hope that we're a people who will keep standing in awe of the wealth of God's mind and bowing in humility to the uniqueness of God's ways, savoring the centrality of God's involvement. Also that we'll say to God be the glory. I want you to bow with me in prayer.